All right, team. Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Liz Earnshaw. Liz is a licensed marriage and family therapist, an American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy clinical fellow, and the founder of A Better Life Therapy. She's also the author of a book called I Want This to Work, which we mentioned in this episode, a relationship vice host uh, for iHeartRadio Morning Show, Good Risings, and the creator of Liz Listens on Instagram, where she shares tips on building functional relationships. So in this episode, we dive deep into a few subjects. Uh, we talk about the main challenges in modern relationships, modern dating, modern marriages, uh, how that's changed over the years, and how the narratives behind marriage have also changed. We talk about how relationships can, in some ways, be a vehicle for meaning making and the traps of that when we uh, use our relationship as the primary conduit or primary vehicle of making meaning in our life. Things like codependency can come out of that. And we talk about tools and resources that modern day relationships need. What do you actually need within the context of your relationship to allow it to function in a healthy, uh, meaningful way? Uh, we also talk a little bit about gender roles, which is an interesting one, uh, as something like 42% of American households uh, now have a the, the woman as the breadwinner. And that's not my term. That's just the term that is used. Um, which is kind of, I mean, it seems a little out. It's like we're not literally bringing home the bacon or the bread or whatever other <laughs> like silly ass saying that we have. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, it's a really like, you know, it's funny how we use food. This is totally a side uh, bar, but it's funny how we use food uh, as a representation for making money, right? Like making cheddar, bringing home the bacon, breadwinner. Uh, anyway. That's a complete side tangent that has nothing to do with the episode, but we talk about those shifting roles and how couples can engage in that because it's very common for different power dynamics to be showing up in relationships. So we touch on that as well. So this is a great, uh, this is a great conversation. And uh, there's also a good bit in the, in the episode about avoiding the trap of pathologizing or labeling and diagnosing your partner, which seems to be, I'm just going to put this out there. And my guess is that some of you listening to this are like prime candidates, uh, prime culprits of this, that as you learn more and more and more on Instagram uh, or on social media, Facebook, podcasts, where, wherever you learn your information, that you bring that information back and start to pathologize uh, your partner uh, or diagnose what's going on with them. And that can be quite frustrating. Uh, and it can also be uh, quite corrosive for the relationship and the intimacy and the power dynamic and all of those other pieces. So we address that. We talk about how to actually move through that, how to not pathologize and how to approach those conversations in a very practical way. So this is a, this is a, a very rich conversation uh, when it comes to relationships. So I would encourage you to take a listen on your own and then to maybe take a listen with your partner or to have them listen to it and then to uh, sit down and have a conversation with them about what stood out, what you liked, what you didn't like, uh, all of those juicy details. Without any further delay, please welcome my guest, Miss Liz Earnshaw. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. How do, how do you feel just first and foremost being on a show called The Man Talk Show? 
I love being on a show called The Man Talk Show. I wish there was more man talks happening. Right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, good. We're off to a good start. Yeah. I, I had a, a guest on recently who was like, so are you going to debate me on a whole bunch of stuff? And I was like, no, no, I just want to hear your perspective. I mean, I, I was like, might disagree every once in a while if I really disagree. But anyway, so. You can disagree with me. We can great. debate. Good. Yes, that's that's good. We'll have we'll have like, you know, thorough discourse. Okay. So let's just start off with the question that I ask everybody, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Yeah. So several years ago, I was in what I thought was a relationship looking back was not really what, you know, you would look at as being a relationship you'd want to be in. And I discovered that there was a lot of kind of infidelity happening and a lot of lying. And, you know, initially when I found out it kind of like broke me, but something about finding out something that is so shocking can sometimes like shock you into change. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like I woke up the next day and I was like, I'm not going to live this way anymore. I'm not going to be in relationships with people where I'm not speaking up when something doesn't feel right or inserting myself or being kind of like a part of the equation. I'm not just going to go along with like the flow of my life and not take control of it. And I woke up and I decided like, I'm going to start a private practice because I don't like my job anymore. I'm going to start dating differently. I'm going to start communicating with my friends differently. And it was an incredibly defining moment. I mean, from that point, I went from working in a job that I was really unhappy with to having a private practice, which I love. Mm. I started dating so differently that I started meeting people who were completely different. I met my husband. Uh, another defining moment, I met my husband on Tinder. <laughs> oh man, there's, Tinder has success. That it does. I mean, it did then. I don't know what's happening with Tinder right now. I've heard some stories. It's a you know, and then all the other defining moments happened. My son was born, you know, I got, well, I got married and then my son was born. I've had all these other wonderful things happen. And honestly, it was because I decided I really going to make a huge effort to be in relationships that feel good to me mm. across the board, work, friends, romantic. So huge, very hurtful, but I'm so glad it happened because it changed everything in my life. Well, my, my defining moment was being the the guy that was unfaithful on the other side of that, that equation. <gasps> I was that dude. I was that dude, the scandal. So what do you know what happened? I mean, you don't have to give details, but you know what happened to him? Like, did he, did he, did he turn a corner? Do you, did you guys ever keep in touch? Like what happened to, uh, to I that don't dynamic? know actually. So he, he lives in another country. And what I do know happened is that, so we discovered that he had fiance and by we, I mean the other women who, connected with me. Not that far. Into oh, there the were a lot of That's layers. Impressive. There it was international. Damn. <laughs> there were multiple like residents. It was a lot. So we actually all connected very respectfully. We really liked each other. And we found that he had a really long term partner in Europe who, you know, even longer than I had known him. And I know that she then discovered that there was even more and ended a relationship with him. I'm not sure beyond that what happened. I know there were a few times where he tried to like connect with any one of us to like tell a story. But I'm telling you, I like changed immediately. I was like, none of the stories are flying anymore. This yeah. isn't going to work. I hope that it was his defining moment too. I hope that, you know, we were young. I hope he changed and he found whatever it was he was looking for 
with all of this chaos that was being... What, what do you think, like just out of curiosity, not to deviate too much away from what we're going to talk about here, but from a clinical perspective, what do you think causes someone to go that far into... Because that's almost like you're living multiple lives. You know, like I was certainly, I was unfaithful and I lied a lot and I was cheating and that that was there. And no part of me ever went down the path of, I want to be engaged to multiple people or, you know, be married and have all these other things going on. That that feels very complicated. (laughs) So, you know, it's fascinating. I, I think another piece of why it was easy for me to kind of shock myself out of it was that it became like a fascinating psychological interest of mine. Like Mm -hmm. what happened here? Because there were actually days where he would wake up at 3am so that he could have a phone call with someone, a partner in Europe Mm -hmm. to make them believe that he was in another part of Europe. So that the times matched up, right? So he'd be like, oh yeah, I'm on my lunch break right now. But really it would be 3am in Philadelphia. Mm And he would be telling me that he was going to the gym before work. So there was dedication to a cause right there. Dedication. I mean, it goes deep. Like he had interest, like one person was an interior designer. He had interests of interior design with her, but he would talk about different things with me. So I've always been curious, like, what is that about? I will say we were young, so I'm not sure. And, And he had a job that took him all around the world. The part of me that wants to assume the best is like, there was too much food on the table and he wanted to eat it all. Like it was like, I'm young and I have money and I'm traveling and all these girls think I'm handsome and, you know, I'm just going to go for it. And then I got it. Maybe he got in too deep and kept getting in too deep because he felt guilty. The other end of the spectrum where maybe you don't assume the best is that there is something kind of pathological there. And Perhaps there was some trauma in childhood that would lead somebody to constantly seek out love, right? And almost, yeah, just just like so much love because everybody that was with him really loved him mm. a lot. Yeah, so it wasn't just about sex and... No, and you know, he, he wouldn't see people often because he was all over. It was really about love, mm. which I've always just been curious what was that about? And being able to to step back from it and see it without, like, I don't feel activated when I talk about it anymore. There's so many possibilities of what might have caused that. Yeah. I'd love to know what he's doing now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I appreciate that perspective because I think, well, I think in, in many ways, like, is easy to get caught up in, you know, having relationships and having these sort of like where we're getting attention and validation. And I think in our, in our modern times is very easy, you know, like you can, you can swipe right on Tinder, you know, and find a date for tonight or an hour from now. Right. And it's, we kind of have this sort of smorgasbord or buffet of options, which, you know, it brings us to, things like the choice paradox, right? The more choice you have, the harder it is to choose. And we 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 conceptually as humans think that the more choice that we have, the easier it should be, or the more choice that we have, the more freedom that we have to choose. But actually, what we found is that it seems to have a, an opposing impact on us. And so anyway, that, that probably doesn't have much to do with him. But I think it's just generally a, a sensation that people experience, right? Where they're inundated with choice. And I think a, a lot of people feel that where, at least for me, I do get a, a lot of questions online about like, how do I know if she's the one? You know, how am I supposed to know 
if I'm going to commit to this person, you know, how am I supposed to know if I want to get married to this person? So that is a big question. And I think a part of what we're going to talk about today, which is like, how the hell do you make modern relationships work (laughs) in a time where, where, you know, you have this abundance of choice, marriage rates are going down, divorce rates are going down, but that's largely, I think there's some sort of correlate there that maybe because marriage rates are going down and less people are getting married and they're getting married later. Yeah. But so let's just start with what do you see as some of the main challenges in modern relationships? Like what are people really facing and what's changed over the years that's brought about some of these obstacles and challenges? That's such a good question. So a lot has changed, right? Like we've we've moved through what the the marriage looks like. Started for very almost like utilitarian survivalist purposes. We're going to unite because we have to. You're the one who has the farm and I'm going to live on your farm and we're going to have kids together that can help us grow the farm together. Mm. It kind of moved from that to more romantic notions, like we're going to fall in love, but it's still going to be complimentary. I'm going to take care of the kids. I'm going to be at home and you're going to go out and work. And then, you know, it's moved to something that's even beyond romantic love now, which is meaning making. Mm. And I'm, I'm marrying you not because I need a complimentary relationship with you, even though we kind of do, but that's not what we're thinking. We're not thinking I, I'm in love and I want to have the babies and I want you to work. And I'm, a lot of people now are saying, I want to be with you because I think in some way you're going to expand life with me. We're going to become, we're going to grow together. And what happens is that we get into relationships and even though we might want them to be different than what we, we saw growing up, we might want to be creative and create relationship where we're both working or where one of us is traveling and the other is doing this, whatever. The only template we have is the ones that we saw growing up, whether it's TV or family. And that's where people learn their relationship skills. So if that's all you have, even if you have a grand idea that it's going to be different, it's very easy to go back into those like family of origin patterns and templates and responses. And so the biggest challenge is figuring out how to be okay with it being different than that and being really intentional with it being different than that. And I think that's, that's really challenging for couples. Yeah. I would, I would love for you to say more about this idea and concept of relationships, maybe even marriage serving the function of meaning making, because I, I, I do think that there's a good amount of validity in that. I do think that there's a lot of people who are lacking in meaning. And I think in our society, as it becomes more chaotic and less certain, I also think that people are looking for certain structures to to provide certainty for them. And so I think it's not just for me, when I look at how a lot of people are approaching relationships, it's not that just that they're looking for something to give them kind of philosophical existential meaning in their life, but it's also that they're looking for something to just give them semblance of certainty. You know, it's mm. like maybe this can just be the one fucking thing in my life that isn't chaos. I turn on the news, chaos. I see my family, chaos. I go to my work, chaos. And so maybe this will be the thing. And, and I think it puts a lot of pressure on relationships. Yeah. So I'm going to pause there and, and let me know what you think about that. 
Totally. And that in itself is a meaning, right? Like I am seeking a peaceful life and Mm. you're going to give that to me. I am seeking the ability to finally heal myself and you're going to give that to me. I'm seeking repairing the stuff that I'm there. There's a lot of kind of existentialism in our relationships now. And like you said, it puts a lot of pressure Mm. on relationships because then we get into them and it's just another human who, you know, and relationships are meaningful and they provide a lot of meaning. But I think sometimes we get into them and there's a lot of frustration because it's like, well, I've always hoped for this because I thought this was going to be the thing that finally made me feel loved. Mm -hmm. Or this was going to be the place where life isn't chaotic, or we were going to be the power couple together. And we're not, now we have two kids and we can't be the power couple because one of us had to, to back away. And so I think, like you said, that's that's out there and we're looking for these things that are going to come from the relationship that are in some ways not tangible hmm. the way that maybe they could have been in the past, hmm. right? You can go out and make a certain amount of money or figure out who's going to clean or who's going to do this, but it's pretty hard to overcome a disappointment of what meaning you thought was going to come from that relationship. So what are what are some of the things that people are looking for? Like when you say that they're looking for meaning from the relationship or, or like would an example of that be they're looking for the relationship to provide meaning in this in a in a purpose sense, in a like in a career oriented sense? Like what what are some examples of that that you've seen? Because I, I think it, it will help the listener be like, oh, yeah, actually, I am doing that. <laughs> I have a, tried a to do that to my relationship. <laughs> You know, I think that it might be something like a career goal, but there's usually something else underneath that, which is like, I finally want to feel empowered or I want to be supported or I want to be seen. I want to be the priority. So there's a lot of like these underlying things beneath them, right? Like meeting my husband, I I didn't need to get married, right? Like I I have a career. I'm pretty, if I wanted to, I could have kept going on my own. But what I really wanted was someone who was going to bring me a sense of security. And almost there was this challenge and like, oh, I I really want to create a relationship that's healthy because I grew up and experienced such unhealthy relationships. And so this is like, if at the end of my life, I can create something that is really healthy and secure and communicative, that is what my goal is here in this relationship. So there's so many, but what I find is that we kind of think the other person is contracting with us sometimes for the same thing. And then years down the road, we find it's not the exact same thing. And that's out of conflict can be created. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also an interesting dilemma because, you know, just what you're saying there, right? Like I didn't need to get married, right? I didn't have to do that. And I think that a lot of women feel that perspective as well, which in you know, the span of human history, as you're saying before, like marriage and relationships served a very utilitarian perspective. And so I think there is sort of interesting crossroads there where it's like, okay, not, you know, there's a lot of men that are in that space where like, I don't really need to get married. And all of a sudden you have a lot of women that are also in that space, you know, now within the last like 50, 60 years of like, well, I don't really need to get married. And so I do think it's changed the narrative of like, well, then why should we get married? Why do Mm -hmm. we get married? And if we do, how do we make that work knowing that the two of us are coming into this with the mindset of, I actually don't need this. So how has that 
that belief system, that narrative of I don't need this, right? Like, because I think my wife and I, like Vienna and I were sort of the same. It was like, I don't necessarily need to be married, but it, it serves a function. And so we'll enter into that, into that partnership, into that agreement, just like we didn't need to be parents. And so I'm curious to get your, your thought on that. How has that narrative changed the relational dynamics? And, and are there problems that come out of that? I mean, I think there's a lot of good that can come out of it, right? So I don't want to say it's only problematic. I think the good is that you're going into it because you really want to be in it, right? Like it's not just because you weren't weren't able to go to school. So now you feel like financial connection with somebody else taking care of you or something like that necessarily, like you want it. So there might be more dedication in some ways, but Mm. I think that on the flip side is when things get tough, there might still be that sense in the back of your mind of, well, I didn't really need this or I don't need this. And I think there's also, like you mentioned before, this heavier burden of I entered into this without really needing it. So what has to happen to make us feel like we need to continue being in it? And for some couples, that might be a really high stake, right? Like this, if if this isn't happening, if I'm not feeling fulfilled all of the time, if I'm not feeling this all of the time, then why am I in this? I could just be living by myself. And Mm -hmm. so if someone isn't necessarily relationally focused and maybe more avoidant, um, or even like a more anxious person, they might try to push things within the relationship that don't work relationally, because there's this big sense of I can be on my own, and maybe less of a relational focus. Do you feel like the resources that we need in modern day relationships have changed over the past 30, 40 years? And and if so, what are some of those resources? What are some of those tools that, you know, in your clinical practice today that you see couples really requiring that, that maybe a lot of people are struggling to, to cultivate? Yeah, you know, I think one is that people need so much flexibility now. Hmm so much. And not that people weren't flexible in the past. And I'm not going to write off like all of the challenges that have always come with relationships. I think that many are still the same. But because we're trying to do something different and, and create like this interdependence, right, where we both are able to like navigate our own needs and also navigate the needs of the relationship. And I'm supporting you and being whatever you want to be. And you're supporting me, whatever I want to be that we need flexibility. And I think flexibility is really hard for couples, mm. really hard because we we start the relationship with certain roles. And if you don't continually look at, does this role actually work? You're going to want those roles to continue. And sometimes they they can't. And sometimes that might feel like a failing rather than well, you know, this is, we have to be flexible here. Maybe for a while you have to step out of X, Y, and Z while I step into this other thing. And are you able to do that? I also think obviously gender roles are having to be rewritten. Mm. You know, for example, my, my husband actually just left his job so that he could do more at home because my career was pulling me in a direction where it just wasn't, it just wasn't working to, be the one who was socialized to be so great at home and so great with the baby and all of that. And so I was working, but I was doing all of these things I automatically know how to do. And my husband had to be flexible enough and open enough about it's okay for gender roles to be flexible Mm -hmm. to say, okay, I'll quit my job. And for a little while, I'll do the school pickups. I'll do the lunches. I'll do all of that. Um, 
So I think there's also a lot of like consciousness and like you have to work through your ego a little mm-hmm. bit mm-hmm. in relationships. And you you said people want structure, but I actually think we're getting less of it in our relationships and that's really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. And I, I think flexibility is an interesting word to hone in on because I do think that that's true. I do think that's what a lot of couples are actually requiring. But I think that what I see a lot of is that couples are often fixated on fairness, this idea of what's fair within the relationship, which creates a very different conversation, you know, around like, this is what I think is fair in the relationship. And it's like, well, that usually creates a very combative perspective. And I do think what you're saying is interesting as well around the the gender roles, because I think it's something like 42% of American households, women are the number one breadwinner. I don't know why we still use that term, but it's like, there it is. But, but we're they, winning the bread. Uh, yeah, it's just, <laughs> just, yeah. I mean, yeah, flax, you know, flax loaves of bread yeah. and multigrain. You're you're winning all, all of, of the it. types of bread. We go out <laughs> and we get it all. <laughs> but but that is a very interesting thing. And I mean, even you know, I run something called the Alliance, and there's hundreds of men from around the world. And I, you know, we were talking about this on one of the calls where I said, you know, something like 42 percent of households, women are are making more money than their than their than their male partners. And open that up for discussion because some of the men were in that category. And it's something that a lot of guys don't talk about. And I still think there's a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a lot of shame and, and judgment around what that looks like. Mm-hmm. How do you recommend, you know, partners, couples navigate that type of conversation? Because I do think clearly the data is showing that that's happening more than maybe people are letting on first and foremost. And secondly, it's, I've heard it cause a lot of complications in people's relationships. So how do couples begin to have monetary conversations where it's affecting the sort of quote unquote traditional gender rules? What does that look like for me? I know it's a, <laughs> we're getting into some, some good stuff here. <laughs> yeah, no, this is a great question. And I know before we were talking, we were thinking about maybe talking about some Gottman stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that a really important conversation to have around that has to start with what is connected to this for you before you can come to agreements, create flexibility, have change, really have comfort in that. Because the reality is, is that we're all raised with like these templates of what we're supposed to look like and what we think we're going to be and all of that. And honestly, we might consciously say, well, that's not what I want to be. I want to be in a relationship where we're both doing what we want. Who cares if my wife makes more than me? And I mean, like, but unconsciously, there's often a lot still connected to that based off of what you saw growing up being termed a success or Mm. being a good partner or whatever. And I think a lot of couples will jump over that and there will be this really kind of like almost critical conversation. Like, why does that matter to you? I don't understand. I thought that we were in an equitable relationship. I I thought you were a feminist and like now you're saying it bothers you. I make more money. And what happens is that the other person then feels really unseen, shut down, criticized, right? And as we know from the Four Horsemen, John Gottman's Four Horsemen, that's just going to elicit defensiveness. Mm -hmm. Your partner is going to say, that's not what it is. And now you're calling me sexist. You think I'm sexist? And (laughs) we go into this like conversation that didn't need to go in that direction. 
And so what I usually recommend is that people have what's called a dreams within conflict conversation, which is recognizing, you know, something's coming up between the two of us. I don't understand it, right? Like I thought, I thought that you wanted me to really succeed in my career. I'm feeling that there's tension around that. Can we talk about what's underneath that? Mm. And we'll do in Gottman method therapy is we'll ask people to talk about what's the story behind this? Like, what did you see growing up that people were, we start with the shoulds. So what was the should that you grew up with, honey? Right. And your partner. So my husband might say, well, I grew up thinking I should, if I'm a good partner, be the one that provides the monetary, you know, support in the relationship. Mm. And what did you think you should have done? Oh, I thought I was, you know, just going to grow up and take care of the kids and make a beautiful house. Um, That's what I should do. And being able to say, so what feelings are associated with it if you're not doing that right now? And I would say on my end, there's a lot of guilt. You know, I, I feel guilty that I'm not the one that picks up my son every day from school. And maybe my husband would say, I feel embarrassment or I feel shame or whatever. And then talking about things like, well, what would be an ideal dream for how we can make it work together? You know, do you want to hold on to that should? That's still really important to you. And is there a way we can kind of make that feel better here? And like, what's the very worst thing that happens if you continue to feel this way or we continue not to be able to meet the dream underneath that? Mm. But you often are really surprised with what people say. It's not the rigid thing usually. It's not, I want to go back to work, da, 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 da. It's, I want to feel proud. My dream is to feel proud of myself. Great. How do we do that? Or my dream is to feel like I'm a really good mom. And catastrophe would be my son grows up and thinks I was neglectful, right? So talking about the stuff underneath, particularly with money, because you just brought that up, can be a really powerful way to get out of those kind of nasty, antagonistic conversations that... Uh, yeah, because I, I think that for, you know, I'll speak for men, because that's, that's pretty much what I do. <laughs> but I think for, you know, I think for a lot of men, like, we still have, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys that still have the desire to be able to provide. And I do think that that can show up in a number of different ways, it can look a number of different ways. But ultimately, I do think it's, it's man dependent, you know, and what yeah. that providing looks like is, is important. And, you know, I do think that there's room It's like, if you still want to be in that role as a man, that great, like be in that role, you know, like I, it was interesting. I have uh, two sets of parents and on the one side, it was sort of like that traditional, a little bit more traditional side where like my stepdad made the bulk of the money and my mom still worked, but didn't make as much as him. And then on the other side, my dad and my stepmom, she made exponentially more than him, like a lot more than him. And mm-hmm. and everybody knew about it. And it was mm-hmm. interesting because in their generation, that was very unheard of, right? It wasn't very common, wasn't very talked about. And so he, you know, he sort of navigated those waters of what that was like for him. And I watched, you know, I watched that as a kid and was like, oh, this is such an interesting dynamic to see how they mostly as a teenager and as, and as a young man, how they sort of navigated that. But it, it certainly brought in some very specific challenges within the communication realm. So on that note, maybe we'll shift away a little bit from the, you know, that the role piece. 
and get into a little bit around communication. What are some of the core pieces that you feel modern day couples are struggling with when it comes to communication? Because I think there is still a little bit of a difference in how men and women often communicate. I know that's sort of biased, but you know, having, having worked with a lot of men and a lot of women, it's like we, we do oftentimes communicate in a very different fashion. And our mm-hmm. goals are different, you know, and what we're mm-hmm. listening for is different. And so I'm assuming you're going to come at this at a little bit of a different perspective, but I would love to hear your piece on like, what are some of those communication tools that modern day couples can really start to embrace? And where do you see communication breaking down within modern mm-hmm. day couples? Yeah. So one thing, and I don't know if this is a tool necessarily, but I think moving out of rigidity is so important and recognizing that your partner is not you. And I think that we really hope in relationships that we are going to have, again, these partners that have these meaningful conversations with us and that they, they totally, they speak the women mostly, right? But I think men wanted a little more than maybe in the past too, but that our our partners are going to speak to us about their deepest hopes and their dreams, and it's going to come naturally to them. And if they really love us, they will express themselves. Mm. And then we might have a partner who had different hopes. I hope we just get along. I think we're going to have fun. We are soulmates. So we should just kind of know each other. And why do you keep wanting to talk about this? I thought we... I thought we were good. What's going on? And what happens is we tend to think the other person should communicate like we communicate. Mm -hmm. And part of the work, I think, is learning how to create some sort of like win-win solutions around this stuff. So it might feel like a disappointment that your partner isn't going to want to talk about their emotions all day long, all the time and process everything. Or it might be a disappointment that your partner does want to talk about emotions, but where can you meet each other in the middle? And how can you respect your partner as an individual who has different needs than you and who isn't necessarily writing you off and not caring about you and all of that, but just communicates differently? I have noticed a lot that we tend to, I think recently, we tend to kind of like pathologize our partners when they're not like us. Mm. And that to me feels like a very new phenomenon. Yeah, it's such a can I just can I jump in there? Because I I have found this to be really, I think, detriment, a detriment to conversations amongst people. You know, I see a lot of the guys that I work with, it's like, my wife says that I'm a narcissist. My wife says I'm codependent. My wife says that I'm this. My girlfriend says I'm that. My girlfriend's like, what do I do? How do I fix that? And they're chasing this, this like moving target of like the latest Instagram post or podcast that their girlfriend or wife has listened to or vice versa, right? It doesn't have to be that one way. It can be the other way around, right? Like, you know, one of the, one of the guys that follows me might, might go back home and, and be, you know, my wife is X, Y, and Z. So I really feel like the pathologizing, the labeling, the the psychological labeling, it's interesting because it's almost like the more that people get educated on relationships and how things work and, and with this language, that it can be very easy to 
like slap the sticker on it without actually living the credo of of what that label is or without actually embracing or integrating that. So how how do you recommend, like what's that line for you? I would love for you to speak a little bit on this and how couples can avoid that trap of hyper pathologizing and get, you know, getting into the arguments where literally they're, you know, they're labeling diagnosing each other. Yeah, diagnosing <laughs> one another. They got like the DSM five out, you know, yeah. it's like it's you're this one. <laughs> they have Liz Listen's newest post up and they're like, Liz said <laughs> I yeah, I've literally had a couple bring bring in my posts in the session. I'm like, guys, now put the post oh, away. Like, like oh, nope, shoot. nope, nope, nope. Like, nope, nope, you're not doing that. Let's that close the eyes, get into the feelings. Let's go. Here we go. <laughs> and there you go. Yeah. That's so there's a line, of course, there are, you know, I, I think it's really important that people can recognize like signs of abuse and speak up towards that and navigate their relationships in a way that's safe. And I have noticed that there has been so much of an emphasis on this pathologizing where I'm seeing more and more people use it as a way to not be vulnerable with each other mm -hmm. and to not take responsibility for themselves, to not take responsibility for the relationship that they're choosing to be in, which is probably a very uncomfortable thing for a lot of people to hear. And because it's uncomfortable, what happens is they label and they say, no, 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 no. These fights keep happening because my partner is a narcissist or she's an emotional abuser or she's borderline. I saw it on, in a newspaper. Right. No, he's, he's narcissistic. So it just goes back and forth. And really what that is, it's an avoidance of saying, maybe I'm not expressing myself well. Maybe I'm not setting good boundaries. Maybe this relationship isn't actually working and it's not a good relationship and we trigger each other in the nastiest ways. Mm. I could have, when you asked me what was going on with that person that cheated on me, if I was in an activated place, I would have said all the labels. I would have said, well, I just read a book about the sociopath next door. And, you know, I think he was a sociopath. That would have been coming though, from my own need to have a reason for why he treated me badly because I didn't feel empowered to deal with that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that what couples need to do if they're going to choose to stay together, you have to work really hard not to pathologize. And it's okay to say, you know, this is this, it's okay to have the boundary. It's okay to say, you know, what's happening right now? I'm trying to really talk to you and I'm experiencing so much defensiveness, honey. But that's much different than saying you're such a defensive person and I read about it and defensive people like you, they never come around and that's why our relationship sucks. The more that you pathologize, the less likely you're going to move out of, of the, the dance and the relationship isn't going to get better and you're going to be absolutely right. Your partner is going to continue to be a jerk and you'll continue to react to that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, amen to that. I mean, I think what's interesting is I, I recently did a little bit of a, I don't know if controversial is the right word, but I did an episode about beware the male apologist, like these guys that are constantly apologizing about masculinity and men and, you know, sort of man bashing, because they I've seen a lot of them have picked up on lingo, therapeutic modalities, psychological lingo, and use it in some ways to like rope women in 
and have become very good at speaking the language, but not living the the actual contents of what they're speaking about. Mm-hmm. And so, and women are doing that too, right? There's a lot, it's on both sides of the, sides of the fence. Mm-hmm. So how, how would you, like, how do you avoid that in your relationship? Because you have a wealth of knowledge, right? Here you, here you are, you got a wealth of knowledge, you're, you're writing this book. How do you avoid the, the trappings of not like pathologizing your husband and, and labeling him and like what? Yeah, I'll just pause there. I'm curious. It's, it's hard. I mean, I'm very lucky because my husband is not a social media person, nor does he read about like mental health. So he's not pathologizing me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good because then I don't have to like hit him back with something. Right, right. But I think really one of the biggest things for me is knowing about the four horsemen. Mm. And I think once you know about that, you can start to recognize what is, you know, so very quickly for people who don't know, criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, contempt. Those four things are really detrimental to relationships when you start using them. It gets harder and harder and harder to get out of them. It cascades you into lots of conflict, isolation, all sorts of stuff. So when we pathologize, we're actually using contempt, right? Because contempt is the act of taking a superior position telling someone who they are and that, that that who they are is lower than who you are. You are a narcissist. I'm on the top of the mountain. I'm telling you that you are beneath me. Mm. You are borderline. You are crazy. You're a nag. You're your anxiety you're disorder is coming up. Yeah. You're a gaslighter. You're a, you're a defensive person. When we start to speak to our partner like that, the normal human response is to either respond with shame or defensiveness or both. So you're not going to go anywhere. They're not going. It's very unlikely that whatever behavior that they're doing, which is probably hurtful, and you genuinely do need them to hear it, and you might need them to change it, and you might need to end the relationship. Like all of that could be true. But if you're saying to someone, you're beneath me, I'm superior, I know how to behave, and you don't know how to behave you're going to elicit a normal human reaction of shame or defensiveness. Mm. And what's going to happen is you're grandiose, you're in one up, they're in one down, they're in shame, and they will either hit you back with, I'm not the narcissist, you're the narcissist. Or or they're going to say, I'm not, and here's all the reasons why. Or they're just going to shut up and be ashamed and pull away, withdraw, whatever. So if you can start to recognize the ways in which you use criticism or contempt and learn to actually talk about what you observe, what you're feeling, what isn't working for you anymore, anything beneath that label. You can describe what's beneath that label. I've noticed that often when I need help, I'm not getting it, right? And that feels, or I notice when I bring up a problem, you tend to tell me you know, that it's not a problem. And that's really, really hard. When you do that, people can receive it. If they can't, Then maybe you can say to yourself, huh, I've brought this up appropriately, softly, kindly, lovingly on the same playing field, and this person is still responding to me in in not a nice way. What does that mean for me? What do I need to do about that? Yeah, I I 
really appreciate that perspective because I think it brings it back to just some some solid grounded basics, relational. Like I feel like some of the Gottman works are just like these are relational basics. No, it's the, just basic. No, <laughs> the four horsemen, right? Go back to the foundation. Are you criticizing? Are you being being contemptuous? It's not flowery, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I really I really appreciate that you're tying in that pathologizing with contempt because it, it is it's putting people in that position of superiority and you know i also think it comes back to what i was saying in sort of the beginning of the show which is that we are desperate for certainty you know we're mm. desperate for certainty and i think so many people in these uncertain times are looking for any sort of certainty salvation you know, how can I just cling on to you're this? And so it makes it so much easier for me to navigate my relationship with you because I know who you are now. All right. I can I can make sense of why you're acting this way or why you hurt me in this way. Right. That's usually yeah. from putting ourselves in the victim perspective in that place. But I think it does give people that that sort of deep rooted sense of certainty. Yeah. I think you're right. I think we want that so badly. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so okay, can you just say a little bit about how we move out of how do we provide safety for ourselves in those moments? Like what what would the the Gottman sort of structure say about providing personal structure, personal safety, personal security in those moments where we're wanting to pathologize and grandstand? What does safety look like in that moment? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple things. One is it might look like choosing not to engage when mm. you're, because if, if you're doing that, to be fair on the person who's expressing contempt, like I want to make it clear, you're not a bad person, right? Like you're, you're feeling something, you're feeling you're not being heard. You're feeling you are at the end of the line. You've tried everything. And so you are probably feeling a lot of needs and really desiring some sort of change in response mm. and providing safety might mean recognizing in yourself, I'm not going to go to a nice place right now. This isn't going to get me anywhere. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to wait to bring this up. I'm going to, I'm going to write it down first and then bring it to my partner when, you know, with Gottman or with anything, really, when we think about safety, you have to have safety in your body. So if you're trying to have these conversations and your heart is racing or you're having tense muscles or you feel like your brain is running at a million miles a minute and you just want to like scream things, what usually doesn't work is attempting to have a traditional conversation. Hmm. Because when people in, you know, physical arousal, their brains are actually being shut down, right? From front all the way to back. And so you are like an iguana at that moment. You can only run towards or away from something and that's that's about it. But if you can learn to identify, my body is not safe. It's not a good time for me to talk. And this is personal responsibility. Then you're going to enter into fewer conversations that are about contempt, defensiveness, screaming, yelling, threatening, stomping away, all of that kind of stuff. And what that might look like is saying to your partner, I can't talk about this right now. I'm going to walk downstairs. I'm going to go get a drink of water. I'm going to do some deep breathing. I'm going to get my heart rate calm again. But safety starts in our own bodies. Mm. And then that's how we can share safety with others. If you're not safe in your body, it's going to be really hard to be safe with another person. 
Yeah, well said. I feel like I just recently did a, a four-part series for the May Mental Health Month, and one of them was how to regulate the nervous system, like how to actually downregulate when you're in an upregulated state. And and it was fascinating to see how many people were like, "Give me more of those exercises!" Like, holy crap! I love that because <laughs> it's that, that it's that kind of stuff that we actually need in the moments where we feel neglected by our partner or abandoned by them or triggered or upset or angry or whatever it is. It's like what I hear you saying that's so valuable and important is is that those states, we have to be responsible for those states and know that nothing good is going to come of it. And so we're responsible for engaging in those states. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's complexities when you, when you have trauma that you're carrying around adds a different layer, but Okay, my friend, listen, this has been absolutely phenomenal. Your book, I Want This to Work, an inclusive guide to navigating the most difficult relationship issues we face in the modern age, which we've kind of been talking about here. When does it come out and where can people go find it? Because I, I feel like I feel like after this conversation, a lot of people are going to want to go check that out. It's available for pre-order now, anywhere books are sold, but it comes out officially on November 30th. So if you pre-order it now, you will get it on your doorstep, you know, the day it comes out or whatever the post office gets it to you, (laughs) but it is available for pre-order and it's in all of the bookshops, all of, you know, Target, Barnes and Noble, all that kind of stuff. Oh, in the Target. Look at that. You You know, I had to put that one out there because it's my favorite place on the planet. (laughs) I actually, so fun fact, I've never been into a Target before. What? I know. I'm Canadian. It shows. I've never been into a Target. Never stepped foot. You won't care for it. No, I mean, maybe not. But I would love to, I would love to see my book in there one day. I don't know if they're going to put a, a men's workbook in there. We'll yes, see. we'll, we'll see. get it there. And when I see it in my Target, I'll put it right at the, the front of the aisle. <laughs> so good. Well, thank you so much for joining me. We'll have the links to your book in the show notes. And for everyone that's out there that listened to this episode, I feel like with your current partner, future partner. This is definitely an episode that you should dig into. So make sure that you slide it into their DMs, their text message, share it with somebody that, or just share it with somebody that you know would enjoy this. So thank you so much for joining us. And until next week, this is Connor Bean signing off. Mm-hmm.